Hey, I'm Emily Clater. It's Amy Wilson. I want to talk to you about courage. And I thought we could do it this way. Um, I like to think of this as an audio postcard that I'm sending to you. And uh, I hope that you'll send one back to me. And we can have a discussion about some of the things that um, I really want to get your perspective on. Uh, as you certainly recall, and as I'll share with our non-existent at the moment audience, um, you and I went through a similar experience in the spring and summer of 2014, um, which was when I was preparing to move to New York City. And you had just graduated from your PhD program and you were moving to Switzerland to start your postdoc. And we had cause to talk about this a lot at the time. Um, I think for me, it was really wonderful to have you going through a similar thing at the same time. Um, but one of the conversations that I really vividly remember us having was about the concept of courage as it related to um, as it related to a big life decision like that, and how people would say to both of us independently, um, oh, you're so brave <laughs> to be making this move. And when we talked about it, we said that, you know, neither of us really felt all that brave in the moment. Um, it was the next step. It was what we needed to do. And that was how we were conceptualizing this move. But then for each of us, there came that moment where we realized that sort of against our will, we sort of felt the magnitude of, of what we were actually doing, um, felt the fear of what we were actually doing, and, and understood why people would call us brave. Um, for me, it was when I was, uh, it was my first full day in New York when I had the minivan that I had rented to um, drive all my worldly possessions from Michigan to New York, and I was going to Ikea, and I was driving this Chrysler town and country through Flatbush, Brooklyn, <laughs> uh, obviously with no idea who I was or where I was going in a very literal sense, as well as a metaphorical sense, and I just had this moment of like, yep, <laughs> okay, all right, I'm being brave right now, I'll, I'll take it. Um, but I think that one of the hesitations that we both felt was, um, is, it, is it brave to, to be doing something that's essentially a self-interested move when there are so many more conventional or traditional versions of courage that involve, oh, I don't know, um, volunteering with landmine victims in Zaire? <laughs> which is an extreme example, but you see what I'm saying. Um, and, and one of the things that I really want to talk about in my this new audio special about courage is how courage is um, not only political, but it's also affected by your identity and what you present to the world. And, and what people will perceive as bravery in you is intimately related to the expectations that they already have for you and for what acceptable or normal behavior might be for a person such as you are. And I would really like to hear uh, more of your thoughts about it, particularly now that we're both looking at this move with the distance of um, almost two years, believe it or not. So. Um, let me know. I hope this reaches you in good health. <laughs> Love, Amy Wilson. Dear Amy Wilson, it's Emily Clater responding from Switzerland to your audio postcard. I really agree with so many of the things you said in your postcard about courage. I remember also really vividly when you were about to move to New York and I was about to move to Switzerland and so many people around us were telling us both how, how brave we were. And, you know, I think we got 
maybe a little annoyed by it at the time, um, partially because it kind of felt like when people chalked our moves up to bravery that they were ignoring how much actual work goes into these moves. Um, but also, yeah, I think it's because we didn't, we didn't really feel brave. It didn't make sense to us that people were saying those things. Um, for me, I think the reason I didn't feel brave when I was moving to Switzerland is that I never felt like I had much of a choice in the matter. You know, times in my life when I feel brave are moments when I choose to do something that's scary for me. Like, as you know, I've, I've recently gotten really into rock climbing, and sometimes when I'm climbing, there'll be a moment where I'm scared, and I think about, you know, maybe I should just climb back down to safety, or maybe I should go for it. I should try this move that scares me. And when I do go for it, I feel really brave. But with moving to Switzerland, I, I never had that sense at all of choosing to take a risk. I got this offer of the postdoc here, and it was such an incredible opportunity, both for my career and, and my own personal development, that it was just sort of obvious that I had to take it. There was never really any moment where, you know, I felt like I was standing on the precipice and deciding willfully to jump. I just basically followed the path in front of me and that path led to a cliff and before I knew it I was falling. I guess this uh, this postcard has some has some mixed metaphors with regard to cliffs, but anyway, I hope you get the idea. You know, and, and, and this, this sense of non-choosing for me has extended also into the actual logistics of the move to Switzerland. Like when I first moved, there were so many things I needed to do and little things I needed to figure out how to do in a new country. And this was a huge task, but on the other hand, I basically knew in any given moment what I needed to do. And so, you know, when you know what you need to do, you just do it. And it doesn't feel like bravery, it just kind of feels like work. But anyway, I think all of this is, is really consistent with the point you made about how the, the perception of courage is really tied up in people's expectations for us. Because from, from an outsider's perspective, they don't see our path. They don't see our vision for the future. So for them, there's infinitely many options about how our future might unfold. And the fact that we purposefully choose to follow an option that's logistically really hard looks to them like a really brave decision. But for us, at least for me, you know, it doesn't feel brave because that option is actually the only option. It's just what we have to do. And, and so, so we do it. Anyway, um, I guess those, those are my thoughts for now on bravery um, and courage. I, I hope that some of that resonates with you. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts in return. Love, Emily. Hey, Emily Clater. Thanks so much for responding to my audio postcard with one of your own. Um, I'm so filled with thoughts about how to respond to what you said that I hope I'll be able to sort of distill some of them at least. Um, I, I want to start by saying um, how amused I am that uh, it only took you about four minutes of talking into a microphone before you got to the phrase infinitely many options. Um, <laughs> uh, as, uh, as a note, as a background aside, um, Emily and I are uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, she is a mathematician and, and I am a poet. And I think that um, both of us are extremely concerned with the infinite. So I'm happy that you brought that into this conversation. But I, I'm, I'm very interested in the point that you made um, several times about this this lack of choosing, this non-choosing. Um, and I wonder how much of that uh, perception is actually sort of a protective mechanism. Um, 
I mean, in, in this life, we always have a choice, right? Even when it, it doesn't seem that we do. Um, our, our choices can be restricted by circumstance, but they always exist. Um, I guess that's my, that's my existentialist um, perception of the situation. So I think that that in and of itself is, at least for somebody like me, more scary than the idea that I don't have a choice, is the idea that I do have a choice, uh, and it's not just this choice, it's all the choices forever and ever <laughs> and ever. And so I think that, you know, it's interesting to compare and contrast our two situations because uh, for you, the, the big move was more overtly career-driven. Um, for me, it was career-driven as well, but it wasn't as though I had anything that I was going toward in New York um, that was concrete. Um, I had dreams and goals and visions, and I had support, um, lots of support, which I'm really grateful for, but uh, I didn't have a job waiting for me or, or anything like that. Um, and so I, I wonder if, because you had that, um, it, it, it felt more like a next step than it did a choice. And I'm not trying to doubt your own perception of your situation. I'm, I'm just trying to sort of um, dig a little deeper into the relationship between choice and courage. That said, I do totally agree with you in that it is uh, way easier to, to think that this is just what I have to do. I loved your phrase about it doesn't feel like bravery. It just feels like work, um, feels like doing the needful. Um, and I think that, as I mentioned in my first message to you, I, I sometimes have felt that there's a little bit of frivolity even in using the word courage to apply to what is, you know, again, it's, it's a personal life decision that doesn't involve any, you know, major risk to life or limb. All these things that we're talking about are, are very um, theoretical and sort of abstract. Um, but, but my suspicion is that people who um, are doing things that are more sort of um, traditionally courageous, if I may, would, would also say, oh, I, I didn't have a choice. It was there was a problem that I could solve or there was a, a person that I could help. And so that's, that was my only option. Um, I, I see so often in myself and in people that I know and love um, this problem of analysis paralysis. When you feel that many options are open to you, um, it can be incredibly difficult to decide which one you're going to, to go for. And by sort of artificially narrowing those things down, I wonder if that's some of the mental process that leads to making a, a brave step is by kind of putting on the blinders and shutting out every other option until it looks like you don't have a choice. Hi, Amy. I loved your audio postcard, and I have so many things I want to say in return. Um, I'm really interested in what you said about um, how some of my story is really a defense mechanism. And I, I think that's really true, and it's not a way in which I had really conceptualized that story before. Um, while listening to your words, I realized Maybe I don't really want to be courageous. Not in the moment, anyway. I mean, you know, I want to look back on things I've done and say, that was a brave thing I did. But in the middle of an act, I don't want to think to myself, I'm being courageous right now. Courage, ultimately, is about facing fear. So if I'm being courageous, that means that there must be some cause for fear, and my courage is born out of acting in spite of that fear. So, so maybe 
when I deny my own courage, as, as you know, I so adamantly did in, in my previous message, maybe what I'm really doing is denying my own fear. I'm, I'm telling myself a story to psych myself up for something that otherwise would be really scary. Um, but, but I mean, what, what is there to be so afraid of? As you said, we're not risking our health or safety. But still, like you said, having choices and, you know, infinitely many choices is a really scary thing. Um, and I think for me, that's because one of the things I'm most afraid of is regret. And you can't regret a decision if it was the only decision available to you. And so I think for me, that leads to this narrative of, of non-choosing um, as, as a defense mechanism to, to deny the possibility of, of regret. But of course you're right, that, that narrative of non-choosing is a lie. We always have a choice. And making a choice is, is facing fear, fear of the unknown and, and this fear, for me, of future regret. Um, and in that light, choosing starts to look a lot more like courage. Hey Amy, it's Michael Spinelli. Uh, I just kind of wanted to start, if it's okay, by talking kind of about what I was thinking when you first asked me about this, um, to do this. So it really got me thinking about bravery um, and about courage and about what people have called me brave for doing. And the realization that I came to is that the things that people called me brave for doing um, were things that really required very little bravery from me. Um, so I thought about that that dichotomy, right? That that contra that seeming con seemingly contradictory thing, and and what I realized is that you know what appears brave from the outside is is only a reflection of the person of the viewer's fears, right? So so if someone's looking at me and they see me travel to Nepal alone, they they may think that that's very brave, but that might not be brave for me, you know? Like, that, that was exciting for me, and I wasn't scared. Um, but there are other moments in my life that, you know, maybe no one even noticed that really required a ton of bravery from me. Um, so I think it says a lot that you weren't asking me to talk about my decision to apply to the Peace Corps. You were really asking me to talk about what happened afterwards. Um, I think it says a lot about how, how well you know me. So I'm going to try to make this a kind of a short story. Um, I applied to the Peace Corps and I was super excited to go, and then I wasn't, um, while I was filling out the medical forms, there's a section about your mental health history. And I do, I do have a history of some mental health issues, I, um, some mental illness. I, I went through a few periods of depression, um, I've been on and off anxiety medication, so I wrote it all down, you know, I'm a, an honest person, and I, I just threw it all out there. And they had it from the beginning of my application process, so I figured, whatever. Um, and I did have to do some follow-up with doctors, and they all signed off that I was fine. Um, I've been really mentally stable for, like, years. Um, and then, long story short, I was in my kitchen one day, and I get a call, and I look down at the phone, and I just knew that it was the Peace Corps, you know? Um, 
just new. And I picked up the phone and I wasn't medically cleared um, because of my mental health issues. They suggested that I apply again in a year. Um, and yeah, what you were saying about, about courage being politicized and about people who have mental illness needing to be more courageous, I, I think that that's very true. Um, you know, it took a ton of courage for me to just admit on that application that I have a history of mental illness because I knew that something like this could happen. Um, and unfortunately, with all of the stigma around mental illness, it, as much as I was shocked and heartbroken, I wasn't that shocked, you know? It wasn't like, how could this happen? I wasn't throwing things. I was like, I was like, I can't believe it because, you know, in especially in America, I can't, can't speak for all cultures, but there's this, this story that we're told about, about courage and about bravery and how if you're brave, you'll be rewarded, right? That's what we're told. We're told it all the time. Like, be brave, be brave, and you will do well, and, and they will give you things for being so brave. Um, but you know, I went into this and I was brave and I was brave and I told them the truth and I was punished. And that sucks. <laughs> you know, it really sucks. It, it, it's like, it just shows, it showed me that, that bravery isn't always rewarded. Um, that that's why it's hard. You know, that's why bravery is hard because sometimes it means you're going to fail. Um, and, and yeah, mentally ill people, they, we are, we're forced to make these really brave decisions often. Um, and it's not fair, but it's the world. And looking back at this whole experience, I do feel like, you know, it taught me just how brave I am. You know, I look back at the moments after I wasn't medically cleared and I remember just staring at a wall sobbing and thinking, where in the world do I go from here? I had told everyone in my life, everyone was supportive, I was thinking about what to pack and it just crashed down all around me. And, but I got through that, you know, I... I had could not see a path in front of me, but I found a path. Um, I'm still here. I'm working. I'm living my life, and I'm really happy. So, so looking back, it's like, where in the world did I get all that bravery from? I don't know, but I did. I, I found that bravery. So, yeah, I think that I'm really proud, and I think that I'm proud to call myself a brave person. But again, the thing that people see from the outside, I hear all the time from people, oh, you were just brave to apply, or you you were so brave for wanting to go in the first place. But that wasn't the part that required a ton of bravery from me. The part that required bravery from me, people from the outside, they don't even see. They, they look and they say, that, that first part, that application, the desire to go, that was brave. But no, the part that was brave for me was going to my mother and telling her that I wouldn't be going and going to my boss and going to everyone at work and coming into work every day after that. That was brave. That required a ton of courage. So, so yeah. Um, so I am brave and I'm happy I'm I'm really proud and happy that you asked me to be on to to do this audio postcard. So thank you. Thank you, Amy. Um and I love you. All right. Bye.
Hey, D-Real. It's Amy. This is, uh, we've been exchanging some real postcards now for a while. Um, and uh, I thought that it might be fun to exchange some audio postcards. So this is the first of those. I'm really excited that you're interested in participating in my new audio special, which is called About Courage. So I hope that in these recordings, we'll be able to discuss a little bit um, that, that topic. Um, I want to tell you why I asked you to um, participate, which is because um, I have been, well, these past couple years I've been watching from afar, but um, when we lived and worked together in Michigan, um, I was watching from up close your sort of, um, if I may say, <laughs> uh, personal journey um, toward becoming somebody who is uh, deeply involved and invested in um, community organizing, and not just community organizing, but community organizing with a positive, productive spin, and community organizing that is deeply focused around issues that, um, or, or maybe I should say not issues, but methods that I think we share uh, a belief are really important and uh, noteworthy, like um, art. That was a really roundabout way of <laughs> saying, hey, it's about art. Um, but it's about art, and it's about um, particularly youth and, and creative expression. Um, and I have been interested in the way that you sort of... Um, are offering yourself up or transforming yourself into an artistic figure of political resistance um, in your community of Ypsilanti, Michigan, which for those of us out there who are not familiar with it is, I like to call it halfway between Ann Arbor and Detroit um, in more ways than one. Um, like Ann Arbor, it's a, it's a college town. It's substantially smaller than Ann Arbor. Um, and it's historically been sort of the, the yin to Ann Arbor's yang. They really function as a, as a unit in my perspective. And um, in that, through that lens, there's also no denying that um, Ypsilanti has also been sort of Ann Arbor's black friend, uh, which, I, which I am giggling about while I say because um, you've been signing your postcards to me, love your black friend, which I love every single time. Um, so anyway, so Anna, uh, Ypsilanti has that relationship with Ann Arbor, and it also has, and you can feel free to agree or disagree um, with me about this, but it also has a relationship with Detroit in uh, its proximity, but also in certain similarities. Um, in terms of being an industrial town that experienced a boom and a bust. Um, and I love Epsilanti as somebody who lived near it for a, a few years, but I know that my relationship to it um, can't, it isn't comparable to your relationship to it as an Epsilanti native. Um, and I think that said, I feel very strongly about um, similar regional and, and city issues like gentrification, um, like educational inequality, like um, violence in black communities. These things, unfortunately, um, are not limited to one area of the United States by any means. So with that background out of the way, um, I, what I'm interested in talking with you more about is um, what you think the, well, let me rephrase that. It's a difficult, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, I would be interested to know more about your goals and hopes and aims um, in the 
art and activism that you've been conducting over the last couple of years. Uh, I've seen the end result of it through following you um, on social media, but I haven't been able to talk to you much about um, the motivations and um, the process behind it. And I hope through that discussion, we will um, inevitably, inevitably, I know, uh, end up talking about courage. So I, I hope you're doing well, and I really look forward to hearing your voice again. Um, love, Amy. Amy Wilson, it is so good to hear from you. Glad to participate in your project, and I hope that this response is a great contribution moving forward. It is important for artists and activists in southeastern Michigan to build a coalition. Michigan, as a state, southeastern Michigan in particular, has a rich history in activism. Art from this area is reflected through many mediums. Many people have relocated to this area to record songs, to work on visuals, and to spend time in this geographic location to source inspiration. In contemporary times, in this post-colonial settler community known as Ypsilanti, there has been an increase of transplants and a decrease in the indigenous inhabitants that once populated this region. There has also been a decrease in people of color due to post-industrial lulls. Gentrification is a word that we use to describe this phenomenon we try not to use gentrification in text when we are communicating our art because we don't want to be limited by the term alone. Our art is an embodiment of resistance. Anyone who follows our campaign via social media, anyone who encounters our art in the street knows that a lot of thought is being given to public spaces and private spaces. As a black man, a cisgendered black man, I find it difficult negotiating citizenship in public and private spaces. As a cisgendered black man who dropped out of college, who decided to use his talents and ideas to uplift others. When you are around the affluent in a predominantly white culture, it takes a lot of courage to redefine the archetype of activists or artists. We are deeply focused on raising awareness in this community. As alluded to earlier, Ypsilanti has a high concentration of people of color. 27% of the current residents identify as black alone. 30 years ago, the number was higher. As more and more people seek geographical locations that provide affordable renting options and higher education opportunities, we see that these once industrial post-colonial communities are providing those homes and those cafes are seeking that audience. My hope is to every day embody radical resistance for the respect of the youth who at times feel voiceless, who often feel ignored the erasure of black achievement, 
black accomplishment, for example, in the city of Ypsilanti is relevant to the work that we are doing and it is the inspiration. We want people a hundred years from now to know that people of color contributed not only to developing this country, but people of color played an instrumental role in developing Ypsilanti proper, Ypsilanti Township, and Washtenaw County as a whole. And remaining silent is not an option at this point. Hello, my friend, D. Real Graham. It is uh, so absolutely wonderful to hear you articulate um, your own work. Uh, it's exactly what I wanted to know. Um, I was scribbling frantically down all these uh, phrases that you said um, that I think are so elegant um, and so sort of... Um, a, a distilled essence of what I know must be a lot of thought and conversation between you and your um, compatriots. Uh, some of them include uh, art is an embodiment of resistance. I loved the phrase you used, negotiating citizenship, um, particularly in respect to your identity. Uh, I love the phrase, the courage to redefine an archetype. And I appreciated um, what you said about um, your art, avoiding using the term um, gentrified in text because you don't want to be limited by the term alone. Um, <laughs> I, I want to come back to all of the things that I just said, uh, but the last phrase that I was frantically scribbling down, one of the last phrases was the phrase erasure of, of black achievement, um, which I think is uh, a poignant, poignant, poignant um, conversation that uh, is continuing to develop and is probably in its still infant stages, um, particularly on social media. Okay, so let me organize my thoughts a little bit. Uh, you gave me so much to talk about. I'm, I'm so overwhelmed and thrilled. Uh, I thought it was really interesting that you did bring up your identity as, as you say, a cisgendered black man. Um, because one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot when I've been thinking about how to put together this uh, audio special is the relationship of courage to identity. Um, in terms of the my idea that what is perceived as courageous for an individual is intimately related to um, what our expectations are for how that individual should behave. And that in some ways, um, making a radical step is always going to be in conversation with identity because what is perceived as radical is going to be vastly different uh, depending on, on who does it. Um, my question to you is when you're talking about, again, this phrase, the courage to redefine an archetype, um, if I may ask, what I'm curious to know is how you see that in relationship to yourself and, and what you see your work as redefining not only the external, the archetype, um, but also the internal, your identity. Um, that's also sort of a great parallel to what you said about your art um, being mindful of the difference between public and private. I think that that applies across a lot of different things. And as you may know, uh, from my previous audio special on loneliness, <laughs> uh, I, I'm very interested in um, what is internal, what is private, what is related to identity, and in figuring out ways to discuss that that are peaceful and loving. And 
gentle and maybe even fun, <laughs> uh, which I think that um, is, again, a sort of relevant, uh, a relevant concept when you're talking about um, using art as resistance, uh, that art is a lot of things. I think if I could come up with a brief description about art off the cuff, I would probably be working uh, <laughs> as a professor somewhere and not uh, sitting on my couch in the middle of a day on a Wednesday. But uh, art's a lot of things. It's, um, it, it, it can be challenging. It can be difficult. It's supposed to, you know, the old quote, is it supposed to um, disturb the comfortable and comfort the uncomfortable? <laughs> Or something of, like that, um, and I think it's that second part that I'm I'm interested in, and is art as a soothing mechanism, art as a healing mechanism for people who, as you say, have felt voiceless, have felt ignored, and who have felt erased. The last thing I want to say is about the phrase "remaining silent is not an option." One of the conversations that I'm having with somebody else in this audio special is about this idea that uh, what I did was brave, but I didn't have a choice. I just did it. Um, my argument is that you always, you always have a choice. You always do have a choice. Um, and when you're making the brave choice, if you believe it to be the only one, that that might be um, a function of you being brave. <laughs> Can't think of another way to say it. I agree with you that we're reaching a political point or we have reached a political point where it feels absolutely necessary to engage with politics on whatever level, in whatever sphere is appropriate for the in you as an individual. Um, and I wonder if you're willing to talk a little bit more about um, what that feels like for you. Uh, I know for me, um, it kind of hurts. Uh, it sucks. Um, it 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 sucks to feel like uh, it sucks to feel like I have to keep going sometimes. Um, but that's how it is. Um, we do have to keep going. Uh, again, I think the work that you're doing is incredibly important, and I'm glad that you're doing it. And um, I look forward to hearing more of your lovely thoughts. Most movements striving to counter the attacks toward black bodies have focused on the needs of those who are cisgender. We must push the revolution forward to fight for black men, black women, and black bodies means to also fight against systems that harm black trans, gay, and bisexual members of our community. Too long there has been a deep conservatism in many black folks surrounding LGBT members of the community. If we are to fight for black liberation, we must fight for all people to be liberated. The silencing of black women, the revelance of Ella Baker, has served as inspiration for me. Ella Baker once stated, you didn't see me on television. You didn't see news stories about me. The kind of role that I tried to play was to pick up pieces or put together pieces out of which I hoped organization might come. My theory is strong people don't need strong leaders. The often overlooked and unappreciated work of Ella Baker speaks to the silencing behaviors experienced by women of color. Silent doesn't only encompass not making any sound. Silent as an adjective also describes being uncommunicative. In the recording prior, I mentioned that Remaining silent is not an option. I was hinting to the fact that if we are to produce direct, immediate content, and if we are to display art in public settings, we must be communicative.
Art is cathartic. It provides a relief through open expression of strong emotions. And once transferred, others are able to form opinions and share commentary with those who may not have been a part of the dialogue before. Black life is more than existential drama. Black life is more than transgenerational trauma. In order to counter the erasure of black achievement, I must recognize that I must contribute. I must be active. I must be concerned. I must learn how to <clears throat> negotiate my citizenship but at the same time, I may need to defer to those who identify as other than cisgender. That takes courage. One cannot redefine an archetype without fully evaluating themselves and how they are interacting in environments. Thinking solution-oriented is my only hope. The stigma associated with black men shapes the identity of most. I have had conversations with black men and you can tell that their internal dialogue is fathered by stereotypes and white supremacist ideology. Through art and content generation, I hope to inspire others to divorce themselves from narratives that depict Black life as lesser. Those who hear my voice or see the art that I have contributed will most likely occupy post-colonial settler communities. They will know little about the indigenous inhabitants that lived in lands that are now controlled by imperialism, capitalism, and white supremacist ideals. Maybe art will reconnect future generations to the past. Maybe the art will outlive us all. Maybe a thousand years from now, art will be the center focus. And whenever individuals are marginalized, thought leaders will return to the art to point out how we are all human and we cannot allow varying levels of intelligence to demonize or marginalize groups of people. <sighs> Courage may also require study without historical context to black life in America, one may remain confused, disheartened. I am lucky enough to collaborate with people who hold shared values. Their admiration for my mere existence inspires me and compels me to remain radical. It's difficult to use the word radical during an election cycle where the term is used to reflect terrorism. 
the artists and activists in Washtenaw County are not terrorists. They are concerned citizens who want to exercise democracy and they want to promote inclusivity, diversity, and sustainability. Those last three words are known amongst the learned class, the elite. However, in order for grassroots-based radicals to redefine the archetype of an activist, we are going to re reconsider how we redefine the archetype of leadership. It will take more months of art creation and dialogue for us to figure out how to hold leadership accountable. The only thing that I can say at this point of this audio special is to give us some time Thank you. Serene, it's Amy. This is um, my audio postcard to you to sort of help you get the vibe of what I'm trying to accomplish with um, these conversations that I've had with my three friends. I'm, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk about courage right now. It's one of those uh, really beautiful looking spring days in New York where you look out your window and it looks really nice, but then you get outside and it's like the wind is blowing like it's out for revenge and it just cuts through you like a giant knife and it's really unpleasant. Um, but days like this always make me really anxious. But I set myself a deadline. I said that I was going to do this and I was going to have everything to you by... Uh, tomorrow night. It's April 3rd, 2016. And what I can't help thinking about in this context, in this moment, is that sometimes my experience of life is so centered on this on this problem of, of making myself do something that I don't want to do. In big ways, in small ways, um, in ways that make me varying levels of, of anxious. And um, I remember having a conversation with you uh, the last time I saw you in person when I was telling you about my idea for this audio special. And I was in a very, very sensitive mood that day. I was very melancholy, very down. Um, and I said to you, I don't know why I feel this compulsion to sort of cut out my heart and put it on a platter in service of illustrating some large philosophical concept that I think it's important to talk about, you know, very self-pityingly. And you just sort of calmly went on eating your soup and was like, well, I don't know why you feel the need to do that either, but you clearly do, so you might as well just keep on doing it. And I, at the time, I was like, God damn it, Serene. <laughs> but I knew you were right. I knew you were right, and that is the most difficult part about courage to me. I have many existentialist points of view, as I talked about um, in my conversation with Emily Clater in terms of the infinity of choice, the responsibility of choice. Um, and I think that uh, 
one of the most existentialist parts of myself really comes to the fore when I talk about this this topic. Um, I always think about this issue of uh, the, the very famous line from Beckett, um, which I always misquote, but I like it better when I misquote it, so I'll just keep doing it. Um, I can't go on. I must go on. I'll go on, which to me is the essence of that moment of the the individual before they're making a courageous decision. I was also really struck um, by what my friend Michael said about uh, the courage of everyday life and how for him the harder thing to do, the thing that required more courage of him was not to apply for the Peace Corps, but was to go into work and tell his mom and tell everybody in his life that he wasn't going to be able to go after all. I think I also talked about that a little bit in my conversation with Emily, the the big items of courage, the flashy bells and whistles, um, sexy items of courage versus the more everyday quotidian ones that I think what I'm trying to say uh, feel more generally important to me in terms of building and living a courageous life. And with that said, I, I want to turn my attention now to what I talked about with um, D. Real Graham and also with Emily and Michael, but largely with D. Real about the political nature of courage. The thing that I said over and over when I was putting together this audio special is that courage is political. It is a political topic because of the way that um, people are demanded to be courageous in different ways because of the way it interacts with identity. Uh, that said, I was very invested in bringing in a, a more overtly political voice into this conversation, which is why I was really glad that, that D-Rail was able and willing to talk to me about what he does. Um, I want to specifically mention that those who are interested in what D-Real and his compatriots do should visit RadicalWashtenaw.org. Washtenaw, it's hard to say, but it is the, the county that contains both Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Um, so it's RadicalWashtenaw.org. I want to thank you, as always, um, because I know that you'll get this, and that's something that is really special to me. I really want to thank um, Emily Clater, Michael Spinelli, and D. Real Graham for participating in this with me. And I want to dedicate this audio special to my mom, uh, whose birthday it is coming up soon on May 9th. Um, when it comes to the daily the daily aspect of courage, the quotidian aspect of courage, the type of courage that's about getting up and facing the day and doing things that you don't want to do because you know that you need to do them and trying to do those things with a good attitude um, and with a sense of empathy and engagement with the world. I can think of no no better example of that than my mom, Ronnie Emden, who is one of the bravest people that I've ever met in my life. Uh, I'm very glad to have had her example in my life. Um, and she is also, um, in addition to being a, a very courageous individual who has been through some difficult things in her life um, as a young person and in our family, uh, she is also my number one fan. Um, if there were a, a, a number greater than one, I need Emily, the mathematician, to help me with this, but if there were a number greater than one in this context, that would be my mom. Um, my mom and my dad have both always been incredibly supportive of the artistic, creative life and personal decisions that I've made. And to me, I would not... Be able, I, to talk about courage without talking about the support of my parents that has enabled me to make life decisions would be impossible. So there's that. <laughs> um, <laughs> happy birthday, Mom, and thank you, Serene, and thank you to all of you for listening, 
And um, if you visit my Facebook page, www.facebook.com slash with Amy Wilson, you'll find a transcript of all the conversations that you've heard today, as well as an extra special bonus that you're not hearing in this audio special, which is a poem uh, by a New York-based poet named Hugh Seidman that I thought really um, spoke well to some of the themes that um, I've tried to bring out today. So I hope that uh, if you're interested, you will go to the Facebook page and you'll seek out uh, that written supplementary material. Uh, Thank you for listening. This has been About Courage. Courage.